So once upon a time, in ancient Argos, which is now part of Greece, there was a woman who had two sons. This woman named Kaidipe was a priestess of Hera and as such was responsible for performing the rites at the annual festival held on the island to honor the goddess. On her way to the festival one year though, the oxen pulling Kaidipe's carriage falls ill and is unable to continue. Her two sons, Cleobus and Viton, take the yoke and finish the journey, pulling their mother and her cart the rest of the way, a distance of many miles. After the harrowing trek to successfully deliver their mother, the priestess, to the festival, the brothers collapse into a deep sleep, exhausted but satisfied with their efforts. Kaidipe is so taken by their strength and their devotion, upon arriving at the temple, she prays to Hera that her glorious sons might die the happiest of men. The goddess answers her prayer, and Cleobus and Beton never wake up. Those Greeks certainly knew how to write comedy, right? <laughs> well, we are talking about happiness today. What is it? How do we get it? How do we hold on to it? How might we spread it around? Big questions indeed, but questions that each and every one of us probably struggle with at some time in our lives. Now, the title of the service comes directly from one of the foundational documents of our country, the Declaration of Independence, penned at least in part by Thomas Jefferson in the late June, early July of 1776. But the phrase that it's part of, the inalienable rights of people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, is itself a very interesting point as it constitutes both a direct reference to and a radical departure from earlier philosophical thought. 17th century English philosopher John Locke wrote nearly a century before Jefferson about the God-given rights of life, liberty, and property, subject, of course, to limitations regarding how a person might exercise those rights and what obligations the government did and did not have to protect them. And Jefferson was, of course, well-versed in Lockean philosophy, and property rights do figure prominently in early American law. But the right to property is conspicuously absent in this first sentence of the second paragraph of the document that would establish our country. No, what replaces it in Jefferson's phrase is the pursuit of happiness. Meaning, presumably, that happiness itself, whatever that is, is not a right, but the quest for it is. Liberty, it would seem, means more than simply being able to live free of bondage. It means also the freedom to choose one's own path, one's own vocation, one's own lifestyle, specifically to pursue individual happiness. Now, the fact that these words were written by one of the century's most prominent slaveholders, 
ironic though it is, does not detract from the sentiment behind them, as indeed this phrase has been used in years since to justify the abolishment of slavery, civil rights, and an ever-expanding understanding of human liberty. Much of Jefferson and the post-Enlightenment thinkers that made up our early government, and our early Unitarian churches, by the way, were heavily influenced by the Greeks, and specifically a now little-known Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Epicurus, though few of his original writings remain from the third century before the Common Era when he lived, apparently said quite a bit about happiness and what causes it and what potentially prevents it from happening. Epicurus believed that the ultimate goal of human experience was, indeed, happiness, as defined as an existence free from fear and pain with loving relationships in one's life. That sounds pretty simple, right? Epicurus essentially maintains that people live in constant and unnecessary fear of death, of pain, and are burdened by want. He says the moral and emotional denial we have around our own mortality leads to a life of fear, which leads to selfishness, hostility, and hatred. Epicurus was one of the first Western philosophers to reject the idea entirely of an afterlife and said people's fears of dying and being sent to a worse place than this were unfounded and unnecessary. Now, though classified as a hedonistic philosopher, meaning Epicurus valued the pleasure and information of the senses and a human experience marked by a lack of pain, he does distinguish between the fleeting, moving pleasures like sex and gluttony and the static pleasures, such as meditating on a question so as to gain the lasting, permanent pleasure of greater wisdom and knowledge. Therefore, happiness, as it most probably means in the Declaration of Independence, is much more about inner peace, greater individual wisdom, and freedom of thought than the capitalist pursuit of wealth as it has often been interpreted. Now, some of this should sound a little familiar. Now, where have we heard before this idea that this lifetime is our only existence, that death is the end of consciousness, that the goal of life is to transcend and eliminate suffering? Does sound familiar to anyone? Where have we heard that before? A couple different voices. Anyone? I think I heard it. Buddhism. Right? So the Eightfold Path of Buddhism aligns, not exactly, but relatively consistently with Epicurean thought, albeit several thousand years older, in fact. Eliminating suffering rather than achieving happiness is the end goal of Buddhist enlightenment. Through dissociation from attachment to success and failure, through right action, through mindfulness, and the attainment of wisdom through practice. Buddha, the term Buddha, means simply one who is awake. 
or one who is aware, one who sees beyond the illusionary separateness of form and recognizes the oneness of everything. Suffering comes from this illusion of separateness and creates a desire for things we cannot have or which leave us feeling empty when we do obtain them. Just like the followers of Epicurus, Buddhists believe in simplifying existence as opposed to complicating it in the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Now we heard in our second reading from the philosopher Voltaire, who wrote extensively about human suffering in his satirical and political writings alike. Voltaire's Candide, which is also sometimes referred to as the book Optimism, is an enduring short novel regarding the trials, travels, and tribulations of the title character. Candide is used as a vehicle to explore and expose the fallacies of many contemporary philosophies, especially determinism, which says that everything happens for a reason. Now, the logical conclusion of this line of thinking is that we experience the best of all possible worlds because nothing exists that doesn't follow from something else. And this is ironically portrayed early in the book when Candide's misguided determinist mentor, Pangloss, prevents him from saving a drowning man simply to prove that the harbor existed only to drown him. Voltaire, the author, obviously disagrees with this assertion. Indeed, the title character is often confused by this line of thinking, asking at one point, if this is the best of all possible worlds, what then of the others? <laughs> the story traces Candide and his loved ones through unimaginable violence and suffering, traveling across three continents to flee oppression and seek happiness. And even when his fortunes turn and Candide obtains huge amounts of wealth, his experience remains insufferable, as those with whom he interacts only wish to exploit him for their personal gain. Ultimately, Candide recognizes that happiness can only be found among loving relationships and a simple life of service. Candide achieves his enlightenment when he finally dismisses Pangloss's assertion that their suffering has been justified by the happiness they eventually found by saying, yes, all that is very well, but let us cultivate our garden. So where exactly does this leave us, modern Unitarian Universalists? Now, it can be rightly argued that after thousands of years of philosophical and theological exploration, we are no closer to achieving happiness as a people as ever we were. Contemporary Unitarian Universalists have all but rejected the idea of determinism, again, that claim that everything happens for a reason and is therefore as it should be, but have also had relative difficulty accepting the Epicurean and Buddhist claims of complete disassociation from success and failure. It is true that many of our direct spiritual ancestors, especially in the transcendentalist movement of the 19th century, were drawn to nature as a source of inspiration and happiness. And like the Buddha, 
Henry David Thoreau encouraged us to, quote, simplify, 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 though admittedly he did so using several thousand words. We are still mired in the muck of contemporary complexities, nonetheless. But no, I think that our path has taken us, perhaps not toward happiness in the capitalist or hedonist sense, but rather towards a similar term, satisfaction. Satisfaction is that condition we experience when something has been achieved, a lesson learned, a project finished, a struggle overcome. Like the satisfaction my wife Kimberly feels when a creation of hers comes out of the kiln, pinging hot, full and formed and beautiful and useful. Or the satisfaction I get from delivering a sermon here that speaks not only to those in this sanctuary, but to the issues weighing on my own heart. Sometimes people may ask and may assume that I am happy. But the answer might surprise you. I am not. I struggle every day with the increasing responsibilities of fatherhood and marriage and vocation. I struggle with being unable to serve some of you as well and as completely as you would like. I struggle with how little positive change I feel in the world around me, despair at evidence that things may, in fact, be getting worse. And I'm often left exhausted by the countless seemingly mundane tasks in my life, such as doing laundry and dishes, cleaning cat boxes, and carting my six-year-old and currently disabled wife all over Wisconsin. <laughs> I grieve at the loss of our older generation, seeing my parents begin to fail in their capacities as end-of-life issues continue to compound, and I'm saddened by how much I already miss their influence in my life. I am frustrated by my own inability to grow into an ever more generous person. I worry about money and health and the state of our local and global environment. I am angry at the oppression rampant in our country and our world, and openly wept last night as Rabbi Feingold canted letters from our detention camps in the ancient melody of the Book of Lamentations. But there are still some places, some places, I find hope, find optimism towards, if not my ultimate happiness, my eventual satisfaction. Now, one of my greatest influences in life and art is the wonderful songwriter, performer, and social advocate, Harry Chapin. I've mentioned him in service before. Now, though he's known most for his song, Cats in the Cradle, Harry's catalog of work far transcends this one piece, and he lived as he wrote, in witness to the suffering of the human condition. He used his position as an entertainer of some influence by the end of his life to help feed the world, literally as well as figuratively, performing over half of his 200 annual shows as benefits for world hunger. 
His foundation continues to support hunger initiatives all over the world, and there are countless people alive today who would not be were it not for Harry and his enduring legacy. Now, one of the earliest recordings of Harry I remember listening to as a child included tracks of him addressing the audience at his live shows. Now, he was an engaging performer as well as writer, and crowd interaction was always part of his live offerings. And in this particular track, he speaks about the wisdom of his grandfather. And the quote goes like this, quote, My grandfather was a painter. He died at age 88. He illustrated Robert Frost's first two books of poetry. And one time he was looking at me and he said, Harry, there's two kinds of tired. There's good tired and there's bad tired. Ironically enough, bad tired can be a day that you won. But you won other people's battles, you lived other people's days, other people's dreams. And when it's all over, there was very little you in there. When you hit the hay at night, somehow you toss and turn, you don't sell easy. Good tired, ironically enough, can be a day that you lost. But you don't even have to tell yourself because you knew you fought your battles. You chased your dreams. You lived your days. And when you hit the hay at night, you settle easy. You sleep the sleep of the just. He continues, Harry, all my life, I wanted to be a painter, and I painted. God, I would have loved to have been more successful. But I painted, and I painted, and I'm good tired, and they can take me away. And Harry says, now if there is a process that will allow us to live our days, that will allow us that degree of equanimity towards the end, looking at the black, implacable wall of death, to allow us that degree of peace, that degree of non-fear, I want in." End quote. Well, Harry, I want in too. So this is how I define happiness, the ability to be good tired at the end of the day knowing I did what I could to live my life honorably and with the satisfaction of making the world around me a little better, if only in the lives of those whom I love. So I encourage all of us to think about what we might do, not to seek pleasure, lasting or not, not to achieve success monetarily or in status, but rather to seek the simple solace of tending our garden as well as we possibly can. Like the sons of Kaidipe, having become good tired in their service of their mother and their God, finding satisfaction and ultimately peace in their efforts. If we might continue our work by ourselves and with those whom we love, and even if we don't find that elusive place of happiness, we may in fact leave this life, at the very least, satisfied. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen.